Amen. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 33. Genesis chapter 33. <clears throat> this is the life of Jacob we're going through, and we're almost completed with the life of Jacob. Now, Jacob has cheated his brother from his birthright, from out of his birthright. He's stolen the blessing of the firstborn from his brother by dressing up like Esau, being blessed by his father, Isaac. And so he has cheated his way, basically, to the blessing, even though in the sovereign plans of God, this is exactly how things would turn out. Nevertheless, Jacob is a, has been a cheater and a liar. Yet the Lord has slowly transformed him. After bringing him to Padan Aram, the Lord has prospered him and allowed Jacob to see how his good hand, the Lord's good hand, has been with him, fulfilling his promise. Now, if you could turn just two pages over to chapter 28, a few pages over to chapter 28, here's the promise that the Lord made to Jacob before he left to uh, Laban's house. If you remember, Esau said, I am going to kill Jacob because he stole my birthright like this. And Rebekah sends Jacob off to Laban to find a wife and to be removed from Esau and his murderous intent. And the Lord, as Brother Ray preached, the Lord came down to him at Bethel. And here is what the Lord promised Jacob in chapter 28, verse 13. It says, And behold, the Lord stood above it, that's the ladder of angels ascending and descending, and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Now here's the promise. The land on which you lie... I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. After this, Jacob makes a vow after hearing this promise. And in verse 20, it says that Jacob made a vow hearing this and said, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Now, I think Ray was right when he said he's, it's almost like he's setting conditions on the Lord there, which is something you should not do. If the Lord makes a promise, you should believe it. Nevertheless, the Lord is gracious and merciful and does keep his promise to Jacob. And we see the promise of God and the vow of Jacob find their fulfillment in this passage. Throughout Jacob's life, 
God has been with him. Um, he has kept him safe. Safety is the key word today. Safety and peace. Um, and he's been in a sort of exile from the land of promise. So in spite of Laban cheating him, if you remember, the Lord prospered Jacob. In spite of Laban pursuing him with an army, the Lord protected Jacob. And now at the border of the promised land, Jacob is going to face what is perhaps the greatest threat in his life, his brother Esau coming with 400 men. The question before us here is, will God deliver Jacob from his past, from the hands of Esau? Will God, in fact, make good on the promise that he made Jacob at Bethel and bring him safely back to the promised land? Because that was the promise. He will bring him back to his father's house. Let's go through chapter 33 and see how this unfolds. First, we see that Jacob prepares to meet Esau. It says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming. Now, I suspect that this is a, a desert place, a flat land, and you can see for miles ahead of you. And so he, he could see Jacob and his army of 400 men in the distance. It's a flat service, and he knows that, Jake, that Esau is coming and suspects that he is coming for vengeance. And so what he does is Jacob divides his family in order of importance. We read in verse 2, or verse 1 still. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So the logic here is that the ones in the back are going to be the safest. So he puts his concubines up front and their children, Leah and Rachel second and her children, and Rachel and Joseph in the back. So that if Esau does attack, Rachel and Joseph will have the best chance of escaping. Now, Jacob is clearly someone who plays favorites. Um, he favored Rachel over Leah. We saw that. And he favors Joseph over his other 11 sons. Do you see, if you know the rest of the story of Genesis, do you see the foreshadowing of the problem here between Joseph and his brothers? Even when they're young, Jacob is showing favoritism for Joseph over against his brothers so that when he makes a coat of many colors and gives it to, to Joseph, his brothers will become jealous and envious, eventually selling Joseph into slavery, bringing him to Egypt, and you know the rest of the story. And we will talk about that as we go on. But you kind of see this foreshadowed here. So, that being foreshadowed, Esau is coming. And he is coming, we believe, to kill Jacob. He sees 400 men coming. But Jacob has prayed to the Lord. And I think by approaching Esau talked about this last week. I think that by approaching Esau, 
Jacob is displaying a desperate dependence on the Lord. He did not need to send messengers to Esau in the land of Seir, a hundred miles, 50 to 100 miles south. He could have just crossed over to the promised land. But it seems as if this was a necessary spiritual step that Jacob had to face his past before he entered the promised land. And so Jacob bows in reverence to the Lord, uh, to the Lord, to Esau. And he bows seven times to Esau. And this is showing submission to Esau, a subservient role. Now something happened between Esau gathering 400 men and now. Because in verse 4 we read that Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and wept. So it seems that God has answered Jacob's prayer. And he has turned Laban's heart mid-pursuit somehow. When you bring 400 men to meet somebody, that means you, you intend to do battle. But somewhere between Jake, Esau leaving Seir and now, his heart has changed. And I suspect it is the prayer of Jacob that we saw last week that the Lord has answered and has moved Jacob's or Esau's heart so that he is, finds favor with his brother. And so Jacob and Esau meet again. They embrace Esau falls on his neck and kisses Jacob after 20 years. And Jacob and Esau unite again. And we read in verse 5, When Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, and they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near, and they bowed down. And last of all, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. And Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I meet? And Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have yourself. And Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. So instead of, now we read last week that Jacob is giving Esau 550 animals as a present to, to sort of placate, placate him, and that's what is being accepted here in this passage. But we see, I want to focus on Esau's disposition here. Esau, instead of coming at Jacob with a, a sword, yeah, or vengeance, he actually becomes a model of forgiveness. And lets go of what Jacob did in the past. And runs and embraces his long-lost brother. This is an amazing thing. And I, again, I say, I think this is an answer to Jacob's prayer. Turn with me to chapter 32, verse 9. Remember Jacob's beautiful and model prayer. Jacob said, O God, my father Abraham, 
and, my, and, the, and the God of my father Isaac. O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of the deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness that you have shown your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two camps. But please deliver me from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. That he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the land of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Again, I think this is a model prayer because he attaches his request to the promises of God. And I think we need to do that more in praying. When you pray, don't just pray from out of your wants and desires. Pick a promise in Scripture and attach your requests to that promise. That has transformed my prayer life. Because now I'm praying for something and on the basis of something that God has already given me. We talked about this last week as well. So, I believe this is an answer to prayer that Esau's disposition has changed. The question for me as I was wrestling with this this week, is verse 10. Jacob says, For I have seen your face, and it is like seeing the face of God. Now, how is Jacob seeing Esau's face like seeing the face of God? How is that? I think the context makes it clear. Matthew Henry a good old-time commentator says, Jacob saw God's favor to him. J Jacob saw God's favor to him in Esau's favor. It was a token for good to him that God had accepted his prayers. I think that is exactly right. That in the favor of Esau is reflected the favor and forgiveness of God. Remember, there's an overlap, like we saw when Jacob wrestled with the angel. There is an overlap between what is of heaven and what is of earth in the life of Jacob. Esau's forgiveness and embrace of Jacob reflects the forgiveness and embrace of God in Jacob's life. So, seeing the forgiveness of Esau in a very real sense, I believe, is seeing the face of God. His forgiving countenance. So Esau's forgiveness embodies the forgiveness of God for Jacob. And isn't it interesting, the language? Re Esau, in verse 4, ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Now what does that remind you of? The prodigal son. Turn with me to Luke 15. It's that kind of forgiveness that reflects and embodies the face of God. Little wonder, then, in Luke 15, Jesus Christ himself picks up on that very language. And even this scenario, it seems, to teach about how God forgives wayward sinners. 
Luke 15. The prodigal son. Listen to how Jesus describes the prodigal son. But when the prodigal son, in verse 17, came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. And this is after spending his money on prostitutes and wild living, and, and he has forsaken his father's house. Verse 18, he says, I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you in heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. How was it? That Esau's forgiveness was like seeing the face of God because this is exactly how God accepts sinners with open arms. And so a liar, a cheater, a runaway who is ashamed of his past approaching his brother Esau is embraced and kissed and thereby is exposed to the face of God just as Christ teaches us. So this should be a great encouragement for anyone who's ashamed of their past. For anyone who's been a liar, a cheater, a thiever, who's done awful things, and who's had to come before God and in some real sense face their past. What will God say to you? While you still live, He will run to you. And he will embrace you and he will fall on your neck. And he will kiss you and say, this my son was dead and now is alive. I love the passage in Hebrews. Because while, while you still have breath, there is a chance for forgiveness for anyone. And the passage in Hebrews says, um, while it is still called today... Do not harden your hearts. And so that is, that is exactly what we are talking about when we talk to people about the gospel. While it is still called today, do not harden your hearts. This is the time to be forgiven. Because right now, Christ comes with open arms and forgiveness. But he will come with fire as well. But today there is forgiveness. And I think that's embodied in the forgiveness of Esau. Jacob saw the face of God in Esau's life. In Esau's forgiveness, that is. So, don't run for your past. Run to God and be forgiven. That's the message for anyone 
here today and anyone while it is still called today. Now, lest we were going to think that the kingdom has already come in this passage, we see that actually there is forgiveness here and there is reconciliation, but it is incomplete. Verse 12. It seems that Jacob is still afraid of Esau and still suspects that he is dangerous. And in verse 12, we read that, Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, that is to Seir, to Esau's home, a hundred miles south. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds care are a care to me. If they are driven too hard one day, the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, that I may come to my Lord in Seir. So Jacob says, you go ahead of me, Esau. You and your 400 men, go ahead of me to Seir, and I'll, I'll be there as, when I can get the flocks and the the babies and the children will come to you in Seir. And so Esau says in verse 15, um, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But Jacob said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore that place was named Sukkoth. So Jacob, it seems to be, is pretending to go to Seir to see, to, to be reconciled with his brother at Seir, and, and Esau thinks he's going to go, go to Seir. Jacob lies to his brother, and as his brother goes down south to Seir, Jacob continues west to the promised land. This shows me that evidently Jacob does not trust Esau. And he still thinks that Esau may retaliate. So this is an incomplete forgiveness. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the Lord did protect him from Esau. And the Lord did see him safely back to the promised land. In verses 18 through 20, three significant things happen. happen. Number one, God does see Jacob arrive safely in the promised land. Look at verse 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. So the Lord brought him safely there, thus answering his vow. Not only did the Lord bring him safely, Jacob now owns a piece of the promised land. Verse 19. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he brought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And so you see the promises of God unfolding in Jacob's life. God has promised him the land and his offspring after him the land. And Jacob is receiving the land. And in verse 20, Jacob makes good on his vow and makes officially Yahweh his God. Therefore, 
he erected an altar and called it El Elo Israel, which is God, the God of Israel. And so Jacob erects an altar to memorialize this. What I see here is something we've seen throughout our study of Genesis. It is God's making good on his promise to his covenant people. God made his promise to Jacob 20 years earlier when he began his journey to Vedam Aram. He promised him that he would bring him back to the promised land, and he did that. And God has been with Jacob throughout his exile. He prospered Jacob with his family and flocks. He protected Jacob from Laban, who pursued him. And he protected Jacob from Esau, who was coming after him from 400 men. God saved him from the consequences of his past and saw him safely back to the promised land. God's good hand has been with his covenant people. First of all, for Jacob, Jacob did not have a Bible. All he had was his life experience and the promises of God. So it's not like he could flip back in his scripture and say, yes, God has these promises for me, and so I'm going to trust that. He only had his encounters with God, and God was showing Jacob what he is like. He makes promises to his people, and he keeps them. There is a pattern here that I see throughout, throughout Genesis. First of all, there's a promise. Then there's some kind of deliverance. And then God sees his people back to the promised land. He did this with Abraham. When Abraham went to Egypt... He protected Sarah from Pharaoh and brought Abraham back to the promised land. He did this with Jacob, sent him away from the promised land into a sort of exile. Jacob is in great danger a few times, but the Lord brings him safely back to the promised land. So there's a pattern of the Exodus story in Genesis, a pattern of redemption. There's a great book called According to Plan. If you want to understand biblical theology by Graham's Goldsworthy. It's a great book, According to Plan. In it, Graham Goldsworthy, which is a great name, says, We shall see that the repetition of the idea of the exodus is the pattern of redemption. There is first an exodus from Egypt, a second involving the return of the captives from Babylon, in the 6th century BC and then the true exodus in which Jesus takes his people out of the captivity to sin and death and I think you see God bringing his people through the waters of danger time and time again there is this exodus pattern throughout then in Exodus, we see the actual Exodus, as Goldsworthy says. We see an Exodus from Babylon back to the Promised Land. And then Christ teaches us, and this all points to the true Exodus from sin and death. The power of sin and the power of death. The Christian hope is to be brought safely through sin and death. 
Now the Apostle Paul, the last red letter he wrote is 2 Timothy. And he was about to die. And he says to Timothy, I know that I am about to be poured out as a drink offering before the Lord. That is, he knows his blood is about to be spilled. And this has always been, this has always brought me to my knees, this passage. Because even though he knew he was about to die and go through the waters of death, he writes this to Timothy. This is one of the last things he says. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. What an awesome testimony of faith facing death. I hope that when I am on my deathbed, I have that kind of faith to say the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and he will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Who is Red Pilgrim's Progress? Oh, Alicia Red Pilgrim's Progress, really? Oh, we got some back there. All right. I see you. I see you back there. All right, we got Pilgrim's Progresses up there. There's a great, a great movie. I think it's from 1978. Have you seen the cartoon version of Pilgrim's Progress? 1978 version. It's... It, you have? All right. There is such a heart-rending scene. I showed Gary and Ray before you guys came. In this, in this movie where Pilgrim, you know Pilgrim, he's the one who's had progress to Zion, the city, the kingdom, towards God and salvation. But when he comes to the end of his life, he has to pass through the rivers of death. And I cannot watch this scene without choking up. But the Lord says to him, Before you reach Zion, you must pass through the river of death. This is a hard thing. But call to mind what the Lord hath said. I will never leave thee, nor, fors nor forsake thee. May your faith be strong as you pass through the waters. And in this scene, pilgrims pa Pilgrim passes through the waters. And eventually it gets deeper and deeper and the waters finally overtake him. And just as that happens, Pilgrim's life begins to flash before his eyes. And Pilgrim sees Doubting Castle and how the Lord has brought him through that. And he sees the Bog of Despond and how the Lord has brought him through that. And he sees the shadow of death and how the Lord has brought him through and his fighting with Satan and how the Lord has brought him through. And his life flashes before his eyes as if to say, do you see, Pilgrim, how all the way up until this point, the Lord has brought you through and he will bring you safely through the rivers of death. And through all those things, the Lord delivered him. And through all those times and those trials, the Lord's good hand has been with Pilgrim delivering him from doubt, from sorrow, from Satan, from worldliness, finally seeing him through death and to Zion. It is a beautiful scene and it's a beautiful picture of how I think of my life. 
the Lord's good hand has been with me. And the Lord's good hand has been with you too. We sang before today, Hast thou not seen how thy desires have been granted and what he ordaineth? You have. You have. And your desires have been shaped for the kingdom. Have you not seen how God's good hand has been keeping you all the way in your life? Do you not remember that time where you had to confront your past and the Lord brought you through? Do you not remember that time, those miraculous moments in your life where you prayed and the Lord answered? Do you not remember that? Do you not remember how the Lord has proved himself to you time and time again, providing for your needs, your needs and never forsaking you and brought you safely to the place you are right now? Do you not see that those, even though those who are closest to you have forsaken you, do you not see how the Lord has been with you this whole time, bringing you through? And that he is a friend that sticks closer to the, than a brother? Do you not see that? The Lord has been with you. He said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Just like he said to Jacob, he said, I will not leave you or forsake you until I bring you back to this land. And so the Lord will not leave us or forsake us until he brings us safely into his heavenly kingdom. I find Jacob's life such a paradigm of a fumbling man, eventually striving with God. But throughout all his trials, throughout all his struggles and wrestling, the Lord has been with him, wrestling with him, watching over him, providing for him, protecting him, and seeing him safely back to the promised land. Let this be an encouragement for you today. That the, the deeds of God in the past are your confidence for the future, no matter what you're going to face. And after our exodus from earth, the Lord will save us, and he will see us safely through the waters of death, because there is an ark, Jesus Christ who has died for our sins and risen again, has already gone through the waters of death for us, and he will see us to the other side because we are united to him. So in the story of Jacob, I see a man who is a sinner, changed through an encounter with God, facing his past and being forgiven, and being brought safely back to the promised land, just as the Lord had said. Let your heart attach its hopes to these kinds of realities. Paul said, The Old Testament is good because through the comfort and encouragement of it, we will have hope. God has kept his promises to Jacob. He has kept his promises to his people ever since then. And he will keep his promises to you. Attach your hopes and your requests to those things. Let's close in a word of prayer.